Father, I am thankful again for the word and the opportunity to know more about it, know more about the end, know more about the things that are coming, to know more about your plans. Uh, As we learned this last weekend, Father, in our Matthew study, as much as these things fascinate us and as important as they are, and the fact that they're in the scriptures is reason enough to know them, but at the same time, Father, you call us to be immediately aware of the things of our own day and of the call of the church to do the mission you've given us and for us to be ready for that moment you return. And Father, tonight we address these things in particular, so I pray, Father, that what we study tonight would be foremost on our minds, not just now, but in the days that come. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, how many of you have recovered from last week? Uh, I, I mean, I'll, I'll let you know, it is not an easy thing to go into the book of Daniel and get out of you know, three chapters in two weeks. That's not easy. Uh, it's necessary, though, for our study, and we did it, uh, because of what it will let us understand going forward. But I, I understand if you're swimming a little bit in what you've already heard. But it will become apparent soon enough why we needed to know it. Last time we were studying in the book of Revelation itself, uh, we had finished chapter 3, We had understood the seven letters to the church, and that section, particularly in chapters two and three, that are the section called the things that are, right? That's what we've done up to this point. That's the church age. That's the period of history that's still ongoing. That's the time for you and for me, and and we're in that time now. And the church occupies, as we learned, the last days of an age of history. And that present age, Jesus calls the age of the Gentiles. And when we asked about what we learned about that, we said, I want to know more about what that age means, why it started, and therefore why it ends, and why we are a part of it, because it effectively is the context, the backdrop, for what we're learning in the book of Revelation. And it's critically important. That's why we spent all that time in Daniel. So we learned about the church taking a role in the plan of God in this present age, but this age had a beginning that goes far back in time. We learned that it starts back, as as Jesus defined this age in Luke 21, the age of the Gentiles. It's defined by three things. It's defined by Israel subjugated to Gentile nations, the people of Israel scattered outside their land, and the city of Jerusalem trampled by Gentile oppressors of one kind or another. As long as those three things remain true, we are in the age of the Gentiles. And Having understood all of that and the timing of those things, that, that required that we go outside the book of Revelation. That's where we've been for the last several weeks. And as a quick review, we went into Daniel, and this is the chart that sort of puts it all together for us. We learned that this age started in 605 B.C. with Nebuchadnezzar. And it then proceeds through four different kingdoms, and eventually it comes to its end with the second coming of Christ. And... At the very end of this age, we will experience dramatic events that include, among other things, the consolidation of all authority on earth under 10 men. And then finally, one man who will persecute believers until the very end of this age when Christ comes back to defeat him. Daniel 9 gave us a a timeline associated with these events. And we learned that in Daniel's timeline, you can divide it in blocks of time, These blocks of time are numbers of seven-year periods added up. And so the full period Daniel was told this age would last was 490 years or 70 sevens, but those 490 years were not contiguous. 
There was a break, or as I called it, a pause in the counting of those 77s. The final seven of the 490 has yet to play out. And when it does play out, our age comes to an end. And as we understood from reading elsewhere, Paul in Romans 11, for example, we learned that the fullness of the Gentiles is the reason for the pause. That this 77s period of history, along with the earlier 10 sevens that Israel spent in the land because of the land Sabbath, a total of 80 sevens, that period of time was designated for Israel because of their sins under the old covenant. And yet, the Lord had also made promises to the people uh, outside Israel, to the nations of the world. Those promises come through the Abrahamic covenant, that God told Abraham he would bless all nations, not just one, through the seed of Abraham. And in order to accomplish that, God made a pause in this plan for Israel so that the age would have enough time to run out and offer opportunity for Gentiles. So that's what we've learned. Now, having come to that point, having understood this big picture, we're now back at the moment where we left off in Revelation. Having understood the church age, yes, but now knowing that there is still stuff left to happen in this age, following chapter three, the things that Jesus said are not the things that are, but the things that come after the things that are. So we come back now to this view. And we superimpose the three parts of Revelation back on this view, knowing now that we still have the things after the church to study, chapters four through 22. And these chapters, four through 22, tell the story of the final seven of Daniel's 77s. That's why we just did everything we did outside the book of Revelation. Because what we're about to go study in chapters four and beyond are the events that bring the age to conclusion, the events that bring us to the next age, which are those last seven years that Daniel said have to happen before the age is up. Now, before we move into those chapters, let's figure out what we're gonna call this last seven. It goes by the name last seven, or it goes by the name of, of the, uh, the, the Daniel 70th seven, but let's come up with a better name for that. And the Bible gives us a lot of options. Uh, there are a number of terms in the Old Testament and in the New for this period that we're calling the 70th seven. Here's a few of them from various references in the Old Testament. One of the more common terms that you'll find for this period, this seven-year period in the New Testament is called the day of the Lord, uh, or as Malachi puts it, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Peter describes it this way. In 2 Peter 3.10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So looking at that for a moment, and the way Peter describes it, 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 does this sound like a, a pleasant day for us? A good time? Notice he calls it a day, and I'm here to say that that's not just a day, it's speaking of the seven year period, and you'll see more confirmation of that later, but it just goes to show that the word day can be used in ways other than a literal 24 hour period. Based on context, we know that this is one of those examples. This is, you could say not just the day of the Lord, the time of the Lord, the period of the Lord, the, the, the moment of the Lord, it's a, it's a time. In, in our case, we know it's exactly seven years. And it's not a happy day. It, there's nothing happy about it whatsoever. Uh, Peter describes it as a time in which the world will go through tremendous physical turmoil, being burned up, as he says. Great destructive forces are, are gonna happen during these seven years. Paul describes it this way. 
In 1 Thessalonians 5.2, he says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. What Paul adds to our earlier understanding, he confirms, first of all, it's a day of destruction. Here again, not a happy day, but he adds to it that it comes with surprise. Those who experience it on the earth don't see it coming. It's a complete surprise to those who are on earth. And it comes upon the whole of the earth, not just one corner of it. That's what the New Testament says, calling it a day of the Lord. Some people have probably heard that term in here, and they may have thought it meant something else. Sometimes it's thought to mean the second coming of Christ, but that's not what it means. The day of the Lord is the seven-year period of Daniel that we're waiting for. Another term for it found in the Old Testament that stands out is Jeremiah 30. And in the list we see up here, Jeremiah 30 says, Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. And then he says, And it is the time of Jacob's troubles, or Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. So in the case of Jeremiah, it's called the times of Jacob's troubles. And that reminds us of the definition that Daniel received from the angel Gabriel concerning the purpose of the 77s in the first place. Why are we in the middle of 77s? Why does the age of the Gentiles exist? Well, Gabriel gave Daniel six reasons why this age needed to exist. These six reasons apply to all of the 77s, not just to some of them. So until the 70th seven has occurred, these six goals have not yet been met. So effectively what we're saying is that when the last seven-year period finishes, these six things will be true. What are the six things? Well, it will finish the transgression, that is, finish Israel's disobedience under the Old Covenant, make an end of sin, no more sin in Israel, make an atonement for their iniquity under the Old Covenant, make atoning for that, to bring in everlasting righteousness, never again will they be anything other than righteous, to seal up vision and prophecy, no more need for revelation, they'll know all things, and to anoint the most holy place, to bring into effect a new anointed holy temple for Israel. Now, if you know and understand what all six of those things indicate, you know that that's the kingdom it's describing. The only time you're gonna see any of those things true for Israel is if they're glorified in the kingdom. So, in effect, Daniel 9.24 says, 490 years have been decreed for your people to bring them to the kingdom. So, when the last seven finishes, we reach the moment of the kingdom for Israel. And in Jeremiah 37, we hear that this period of time that's still waiting out there that needs to finish is for the trouble of Israel or for Jacob's distress, a time specifically for that. Now, Jacob is, another, is, is one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. But Jacob's name was changed, if you remember. And his new name was? Israel. And so ever after that in the Old Testament, sometimes it says Israel, sometimes it says Jacob, but it's the same. So what it's saying is the time of Israel's troubles. This is a period of time for them to experience difficulty for the effect of purifying them into the time of the kingdom. So the final period of seven years is for Israel, for the people, and for their holy city, Remembering the definition of the age of the Gentiles again, right? When the people are conquered, the city is trampled. It's all about the people and their city. That period of seven years, the day of the Lord, is Israel's final accounting. 
Now in the church today, we have a come to use a different name, different than the day of the Lord, different than calling it the times of Jacob's troubles, and I'm sure 99% of you know what the name is, right? So the time of Jacob's troubles being that last seven year period, what do we come to call it out of this list? Right. Interestingly, the title doesn't come from the New Testament, it comes from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, they're warned, Israel is warned that they will experience a time of tribulation as a result of their failure to keep the Old Covenant. The Hebrew root word here for tribulation coming out of Deuteronomy is a word that means to compress or to constrict, similar to the word they would use for what a grape experiences in a grape press. So that's the experience to live through this period of history, tribulation. It's the most common term that we use now and it is common in the New Testament. So I'm gonna use that term from here on out. Knowing, of course, that we're speaking about the last seven of Daniel's 77s. So the seven-year tribulation can be further subdivided into smaller periods and uh, we're gonna do that subdividing as we go through it. Sometimes you've heard people talk about the middle of tribulation, the mid-trib moment, and that's a very significant moment we'll talk about. So there's these divisions you can make within it, but for now, that's waiting for us in the future. What we need to understand right now in this outline as we move forward is the uh, transition from the period we've studied so much of already and the period I just gave a brief introduction to that we're about to walk into in the weeks to come. We need to talk about that transition. And as it turns out, the book of Revelation gives us a transition. Chapters four and five are the chapters in the book of Revelation that serve the purpose of transitioning us out of the church age and into the seven-year tribulation. We won't do all of that tonight. In fact, we won't even finish all of, uh, well, we'll read all of four tonight but, or half of four tonight. We'll do the rest of it next week and we'll do all of five next week as well. But for now, there's something at the very beginning of four that will hold our attention the rest of the night. So let's go to chapter four, verse one. And we read this. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things 
and because of your will, they existed and were created. All right, so we read it all. We'll study the first part tonight and the rest next week. In this amazing scene, you have probably the most detailed description of the Lord's throne that we have anywhere in the Bible, although it does agree with the others that we find elsewhere. All three members of the Godhead are gonna be shown eventually in this scene before we finish chapters four and five. Uh, The scene uh, is filled with exclamations of praise for God. You see it beginning there with holy, holy, holy. I always think it's funny when people complain about repetition in worship songs. Wait till you get to heaven. Um, And to say anything three times is to declare it to its maximum in the way that scripture works with repetition. He is worthy of honor, of power, of judgment, of glory. And that's gonna be followed by a fourth declaration of honor and glory at the end of chapter five. In other words, the effect it leaves us with after reading it is that there's a nonstop praising of God in his presence. And I think that just goes to emphasize you you cannot overstate how worthy God is to receive praise from his creation. And in heaven, there will be no doubt. Now that's, that's a glimpse. You know, if you wonder, well, is that all we're ever gonna do while we're in heaven? No, but it's the thing you need to know now. It's the thing we need to be reminded of here. Uh, Once we're up there, the rest of it we can take in. John begins his tour by saying uh, that a door is opened to heaven and Christ calls him up to heaven. And we know it's Jesus calling him up there because John says it's the same voice he heard earlier, the one that sounded like a trumpet, which is from chapter one. And we also know that this scene is set after the church age has ended because of where it falls in the structure of the book of Revelation. We've already been told that chapter four is the things that happen after the things that are, which are the things of chapters two and three. So what we're seeing here is a moment depicting things for us at a time following the times that are. And we're gonna keep that in our mind as we go through it. Jesus says he is showing John what must take place after these things, a very clear reference to where we are in the outline. The first thing he sees, he says, is the Father, God, seated on a throne, and as a result, chapter four really focuses on the Father. Chapter five focuses on Christ. And God the Father is appearing as a jasper and sardius stone. Jasper is the ancient term for diamond, so he's a diamond in appearance. Uh, Sardius is a stone that was first mined in the city of Sardis, and it's fiery red in appearance. So you put those two together and you have this bright, dazzling, fiery light, and then above the Father, an emerald green rainbow, and you, know, you can only begin to imagine what that must look like. This is very similar, at least in the details that match, to what Daniel said he saw in chapter seven, when he saw the Ancient of Days. All right, having said that, and before we get into what we're really here to do tonight, just as a little moment in passing, We know that John also tells us in 1 John 4, 12, same guy, that no one has ever seen the Father at any time. And like Daniel, we know that John is seeing something, but because he can tell us also that no one's ever seen the Father being all spirit, then it must be that he's seeing a representation, something God has made available so that John can appreciate it, make sense of it, but it is not an actual vision of of the Father. He's not actually seeing the Father, he's seeing a representation of the Father as best he could. And it's from that vision that he's getting a message, not the vision of the Father per se, but the whole scene. And as we look at this scene through his eyes, we need to make sense of what he's seeing because there's meaning in it for us. The story centers on events taking place around the throne. 
And I'm going to just list some of the things here that we see. Centering on, in verse 4, 24 elders, they take a prominent role in this vision. They're seated on thrones, it says, not on God's throne, it's their own throne. And they're wearing white garments, and they're adorned with crowns on their heads. Well, deconstructing this just for a moment, an elder is always a term used in connection with a human being who leads God's people. You have elders in Israel who were leading the tribes of Israel in the time of Moses and onward, and you have the church today, according to Scripture, ruled by elders. That is the biblical model. So when John says that these characters he sees are elders, what he's indicating to us is a couple things. First of all, they're human beings. They're human beings. As I read a little further in there, you saw there were some other interesting creatures there. These are creatures that also show up in Ezekiel, and we'll look at Ezekiel when we get there next week. But they're clearly not human. They're not even earthly. Whereas these characters are, the elders are, because the term suggests that. This is the very first time, by the way, in anyone's vision of the throne room of God that you see elders mentioned. And that suggests that those earlier visions in Ezekiel or Isaiah or in Daniel, their lack of mentioning 24 people sitting around the throne of God on their own thrones, you would think that might catch their eye. The fact that they don't mention it suggests strongly they weren't there. That in those earlier moments, they weren't there, though now they are. And those 24 elders are clothed in uh, white robes, which in Scripture is a clear symbol of having righteousness by faith. Not inherent righteousness, but righteousness appropriated, given to them, that is. And the Bible says that that is the kind of righteousness Christians have. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We receive our righteousness from him. We have none of our own. And figuratively speaking, Paul says that we put on that righteousness in the same sense that you put on a cloak. He says in Galatians 3.27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ, so to speak. And you remember in our earlier study of the letters, when we looked at the letter of Sardis, in that study we learned that the white garments that they were said to, to need or to be wearing represented the works of the saints. And that took us to Revelation 19.8 where we read, it is given to the church to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So putting all that together, you have human beings who being called elders would indicate leadership in the, the body of believers, and they themselves are clothed in righteousness, indicating they needed to be saved by grace just like everyone else does. So they're human beings, believers, saved and in heaven. And then next it says, and I'm going to put some of these up there. There we go. Are you all helping me back there? Awesome. Secondly, they are seated, sitting on thrones, and it doesn't take a lot of guesswork to understand what it means when someone sits on a throne. It means they have ruling authority. That's always what it means. And we know that Jesus says in the uh, New Testament that the church saints will have positions of authority reigning in the kingdom with him. In Luke twenty-two twenty-eight, he speaks to the disciples and he says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And he spoke that to the 12 apostles. 
But I don't believe that his indication is that only the 12 apostles have roles in the government. They may have higher positions than others, but I don't believe their role of ruling is unique. And we know that because elsewhere in Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, when we hear about the end of the age and when the kingdom is beginning, we hear this about the saints. Revelation 24, John says, I saw thrones and they, the saints, sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we have elders, leaders in the church, saved by grace, wearing white robes, and now seated on thrones, indicating that they have a ruling role with Christ. And then next they are wearing crowns. John says, and the Greek word he uses here for crown is Stephanos, and that's the word in Greek that's specifically used for an award for excellent performance. And it's the same word they would have used in ancient Greece for the wreath that they put on the head of someone who won a race in the Olympics. So this is an award you earn, and as such, it lines up with other scripture that tells us that the result of a life well-lived for Christ is eternal rewards which are often symbolized as crowns in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, Paul says, again, using the metaphor of a race, probably because of the, the word crown coming from the Olympics, he says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown, he means, Right? And in 2 Timothy 4.8, he says, In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All right, so crowns in the New Testament are tokens. They represent the believer's eternal rewards, and so they are indicative of a future inheritance in the kingdom. They're They're the token that indicates we will have a reward in the kingdom. So put that in this as well now. You have them wearing Stephanos, or as we just learned, they're possessing their eternal rewards, at least in symbolic form. So we know that the elders represent leadership over the church, but we also know that over 2,000 plus years, there have been far more than 24 elders ruling over the church worldwide. And it's for that reason that the Lord could not have shown John every single elder that has ever been in any church throughout the age, right? That would have been an uncountable number of people. So what he did instead was he showed John a certain number, which then served to represent the whole number. Now, you would expect him to use the number seven at this point, right? Because we know seven means 100%. But here he chose to use 24 to represent all leaders, all elders, in the church, and the reason is because the number 12, half of 24, represents the government or the leadership of God's people. You have 12 tribes that govern Israel. You have 12 apostles who govern the early church. You have 12 months as it is governing the year. So there's this concept of governing implicit in the number 12, and when you double a number in scripture, it means you make it extra, you emphasize, make complete the concept behind that number. So. Double 12 is 24, that represents all of the government. That's the way that works, right? Because you don't say seven government, he says 12 or 24 elders and you get the same effect, okay? Moving on, 
In verse 5, John describes seven lampstands burning fire around the throne of God. And he explains that these lampstands represent the seven spirits of God. We don't have to guess. We've got the answer to the symbol right there in the text. So we know that like the Father, the Spirit of God is not visible. He only becomes visible because he's represented by something. Other places you know he's represented by fire. He's represented by a dove when he comes upon Jesus. He can be represented by clouds. He's represented by whatever God uses in the moment. And in this case, he's being represented by lampstands. But here he's being described as the seven spirits of God, reminding us of something you'll read in Isaiah chapter 11 when he talks about the seven characteristics of the Spirit of God. But here again, you know what the number seven means, right? The Spirit of God has no number. You can't divide him, right? He's, he's not in pieces. So to call God's Spirit the seven spirits is simply a convention to say all of the Spirit of God. And we need a convention like this because what do you mean when you say all of the Spirit? I can tell you I have all of the Spirit, which is literally true. I have as much as him, of him as I can get, but you also have all of the Spirit. You see, the problem with Spirit is you can be all places at all times. How do you communicate then that he's all in one place and nowhere else? Well, you do it by the number seven in Scripture. To say seven spirits is to say that though he can be all places at all times, by the same token, he can choose to be nowhere. He can choose to not be somewhere. And at this moment, he is not anywhere except in the throne room of God for at least a period of time. And considering that, if the Spirit is only in the throne room of God, if we have the whole Holy Spirit in the throne room of God, what does that say about what's on earth? Because we know that Christ promised that for as long as this age continues, he said, that he would never leave us. In fact, in Matthew 28, 19, the last things he says in Matthew, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And of course, now with our study of Daniel, you guys know what we mean when we say the end of the age, right? So he's given a promise that he'll be around until we reach the end, and He's not here physically with us, but his spirit is. That's the way the promise is fulfilled. And yet here we have the spirit of God in the throne room and nowhere else. All right, so when I put all of this together, what do I start to conclude? What becomes the inevitable conclusion? Well, with all of those factors lined up, the only conclusion you can draw is that the whole church must be in the throne room of God. Not that John saw the whole church necessarily, not that that's even necessary. The point is the symbology that he does see brings us to that conclusion for how could it be otherwise if the whole leadership is there, if all of the Holy Spirit is present in the throne room. And for that matter, uh, this comes after chapter three and it begins chapter four. In the structure of Revelation, it comes after the church age is no longer the times that are. So at the time of chapter four, the church is the times that were. That would further reinforce this. So we don't hear of the multitudes, but the suggestion is that all the church has suddenly found itself in the throne room of God. But this conclusion is too important to base on subtle clues, on, on suppositions, because it has important considerations for what we would do further on in this study. That is, if I'm wrong about what's going on in the throne room, it can throw off what we study later. 
So it sure would be nice if we had something more conclusive, something so hard and sure that there's just no doubt about what we're seeing in this moment. And as it turns out, there are two key clues in this chapter that give us that conclusive proof. But to find them and understand them, we need to step outside the book of Revelation again for a little while. Not, not past today, just for a few minutes in today. Don't worry yet. But uh, we need to get outside just for a moment. What we need to do is look at some other scripture that teach about the end of the church age. And it begins with understanding another key term. And this time, the term is the coming of our Lord. Now, like the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord is a term that is often misunderstood. It's a little game if you want to, I don't know if you call it a game or if it's just plain cruel, but you could go to some friends you might know somewhere in the, in the church who's not attending this study and throw these two terms at them and see what they think they mean. Ask them, what do you think the coming of the Lord means? What do you think the day of the Lord is? And by and large, most people guess the same for both and both are wrong. Most think they're talking about the second coming of Christ. But if you look at the terminology in its context, you quickly find that that can't be the case. For example, James 5. James writes, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves will not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So in verse 8, James says, the coming of the Lord is near. And he repeats it in verse 9, the judge is right at the door. Now, we know when James lived and when he wrote those words. He lived in the first century. That's 2,000 years ago. That's long before the, uh, the church age itself played out. That is certainly long before Daniel's 70th seven has played out. In fact, it's so far back in time that Daniel's 70th seven couldn't even start until we got to the age of Laodicea and the apostasy, much less the events of those seven years themselves. So what I'm pointing out is this. We know from Daniel that all of the things I just said have to happen before the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ could not have happened in James' day. And I don't think James was misunderstanding that. I don't think James... Uh, was unaware of that. And so if he's telling the church in the first century to be ever ready for a near and present coming of the judge standing right at the door, he wasn't talking about the second coming. And we know that there is an ever-present reality of the Lord's return reflected in Scripture in many places besides James. And Jesus gives us the promise of that ever-present return in John chapter 14, when he says in chapter 14, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, he describes using a bit of euphemism, he describes his future uh, departure from the earth with this promise that if he goes, he will come back. And He begins to talk about the process. Now, it's obvious what he's referring to when he says the Father's house. I'll give you one guess where the Father's house is. The throne room of God, right? We know that. That's where he went. He left, right? Where did Jesus go? Acts chapter 1, up in the sky, right? He ascended. And he says, if I'm going, I'll come back. And he says, I come back again, and I receive you to myself. So let me do a little demonstration up here of what we're hearing, because the terminology is critically important to understanding the event. I'm going to say that over here is uh, earth. 
and over there is heaven. And when he said those words, he was over here with the disciples, and he said, if I leave to my father's house, I'll prepare a place for you, so that in a day to come, I will come for you, and where I'll receive you to myself, he said. Now, I ask you, if I point to someone and say, I'm going to receive you, which one of us moves? That one does, right? I don't receive the person by going to them. I receive the person by them coming to me. So Jesus says, I will receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. All right, that's the description of the events, that he would go, then return, then bring us to where he has been all of that time, which again, we know is the throne room of God. That is a very different set of promises from the one that accompanies the second coming of Christ. Daniel tells us that Jesus' return is to earth to destroy an existing kingdom and set up a new one in its place that fills the whole earth, and then he rules that kingdom in perfection. And we know from elsewhere in the scripture that we rule with him. So here you have a promise that he's returning just long enough to get us and bring us back to the heavenly dwellings as an opposite to the second coming of Christ. That's the opposite. So here again, if you came into this room with various opinions about things you've heard, about what will happen to the church and when it will happen and so on, we aren't getting into those disagreements yet. I'm sure we might, but in the meantime, there's one thing you can't avoid. At this point, it's incontrovertible. There is some event coming in which Jesus comes for us and takes us to heaven. We just read it. That is not the second coming of Christ because of the stark differences in the two. And John 14, Jesus promises here that the timing of these events will be different. James echoes this as well. The New Testament tells us wherever the coming of the Lord is mentioned, that it is ever possible at all times and dependent on absolutely nothing. It's not waiting for anything. Could have happened in the first century. Could have happened today. Could happen tomorrow. And the phrase, Jesus is right at the door, the judge is right at the door, it kind of emphasizes that idea that if, if you imagine someone in your home and you know there's someone behind your door but they haven't knocked yet, it's that, that, that expectation that why are they there? Any moment they could, walk, they could walk in or knock on the door. That's the attitude we're supposed to carry as we think about our Lord's return. And we've also seen in our study of Daniel now, this is where Daniel helps us so much, we've seen in the study of Daniel that there are some hard, fast requirements that are necessary before the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is dependent on many things. I mean, among other things, the 10 kings have to be in place. Remember that from Daniel? And then after the 10, you gotta get down to seven plus one. You gotta have an antichrist ruling for three and a half years. You gotta have a temple set up again for Israel to sacrifice in. You got, I mean, there's a number of things that have to happen. They haven't happened. And by the way, they're not about to happen at least not in the next 24 hours, as far as I can see, all of which is to simply say, the second coming of Christ is not right around the corner. It's coming, but it's not right around the corner. But the coming of the Lord is ever-present. And that is a promise to come remove the church. And we know, here again, that it must be fulfilled before the end of the age. It can't wait until some future age, can it? Because we are removed, he says, until the end of the age, low until the end of the age. That is another way of saying this, that when the next age begins, where will we be? Here, ruling with Christ. So we can't depart the earth after that coming. He's not up there. He's down here at that point. So 
If you put these just in sequence, irrespective of the timing between them in any other sense, just in sequence terms, there has to be a coming of the Lord for the church before there can be a second coming of Christ to set up the kingdom, simply because of the physical locations involved. All right? And Daniel says, we are with Christ when we receive the kingdom in Daniel 7.27, and it's elsewhere in Scripture, right? Before I do this, I'm going to stop for a second. All right, so we have two days we have to consider. We have the second coming of Christ, which is somewhere yet to happen, and it's out there in the future, and it'll be discussed later in the book of Revelation. Then we got this other thing in which the church is removed and brought to where God the Father is, which is the throne room. Now, let's put some other things together that we know from the New Testament, which will eventually bring us back to Revelation 4. All right, so let's take a step forward. We know that there's this coming of Christ for the church. When it happens, we enter the throne room of God. Now, think about that for a minute. We know from other scripture that if we are entering the throne room of God, we cannot have our current bodies. Not possible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, I say to you, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. That was an introductory statement on Paul's part about resurrection, simply saying that the corruptible body that you have right now that's sinful can't enter into the presence of God, can't go into the heavenly realm, which, by the way, explains why you have to physically die before you can go to heaven. The body has to be shed, and then the spirit can enter. Because your spirit's already perfect. If you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you were born again. You received a new spirit. It is already perfect. The only thing holding you back from living perfectly is the sinful body you occupy. And it has a big effect. But once you shed it, you're perfect. You go to heaven. There's nothing stopping you at that point. There's nothing more that has to be done to prepare your entry. Your spirit is already ready to go. That's the lesson of Romans 6 and 7. Romans 6 is, now that we have died to sin, shall we still sin? May it never be. We're perfect in our spirit. Romans 7 is, oh, wicked man that I am, wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? Paul is, on the one hand, sinless in his spirit, on the other hand, wretched in his body, and he knows he's got to get rid of one for the other one to fully be perfected. And, of course, Romans 8, 1, right? There is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus because we can't be condemned. Our flesh is the only thing wrong with us, and it will die. What's left is not condemned, it's sinless. So that's the perfection we've already received in spirit form. We're now waiting for the body to join it. So if we are going to enter into the throne room of God, we must enter in a new body. We, we can't enter in the current body on the day that he comes for us. All right. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.42, he says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Speaking of our, our body, he says, it is sown a perishable body that is put into the ground, buried, a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. The first man is from the earth, earthy, the second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy, and as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So, you have a new body coming. We all do. And that new body is necessary to inherit the kingdom of God. So when Jesus returns to collect the church and bring us back to heaven, he must, by necessity, give us a new body if we are to have it at that point. Remember, you're, you're meant to occupy a body. Being outside your body is not the normal state. That's not the eternal state. At best, it's an, a temporary state. So, 
If we are entering in at the coming of Christ, we are presumably being resurrected at the same time. And there are two passages in the New Testament that confirm that. The resurrection of the church is the coming of the Lord. Here again, I've had people who would say to me, well, I don't believe in this so-called snatching away that's coming for the church, right? I, I say, you know what, that's fine. Do you believe in resurrection? And they'll all say, well, of course I do. I said, well, then actually, we actually agree. I mean, people, no one ever, no Christian ever says, I don't believe I'll be resurrected. They just don't understand that when we talk about being taken off the earth, that is what we're talking about. We're talking about the moment of resurrection. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul describes it. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, or in other words, have died. For this we will say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until, here's the term, the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with those words. Now you notice the movement there matches John 14. Of us on the ground, Jesus in the heavenly realm, him coming, but not all the way, just enough to receive us. We actually go up to where he is in the air, he says, in the clouds, he says, and then we move from there with him. There's no, there's no concluding of him on the earth. That's very much what we read in John 14. Here's a little additional from Paul. Paul gives us a little bit more detail on this. By the way, I'll go back to this other one for just a second because this, this is a term I need to now introduce. If you see in verse 17, he says, we'll be caught up together. Some of you may know this, but in the Latin Vulgate translation, which goes back many centuries, when they translated the Bible into Latin, in the Latin, the term for caught up is raptura in Latin. And if you translate that into French, you get rapture. And somehow the French word has stuck. And so today, many have adopted the word rapture to describe this moment. And some would tell you, well, that word's not in the Bible. Well, neither is the word Trinity. But we don't sit around arguing about that. We just argue about whether the concept is there. And whether you want to use the word or not, I like the word for this reason. Because for those who are still alive, as it says, those who have not died, it's not technically a resurrection. It's being caught up. It's a raptura. Because you're not dead. So everyone's getting a new body, but only the dead ones are being resurrected. The alive ones are being caught up. And in that sense, it's a, a truly a different thought, a different word. And here's the additional detail. Paul gives us a small little bit from 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, sleep there means die again. Although I love that little phrase if you put it on a nursery wall somewhere in the, in the back of the church. It's particularly appropriate. But speaking about believers, he says, We will not all die, but we will all be changed. And that's a pretty strong statement that is hard to overlook if you have concerns or issues with the concept of a catching up or a raptura. He says plainly, we will not all die. I don't know of any other explanation for how that's going to be true other than the one we're looking at here. He says, it will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that word in Greek is atmos, it's where we get the word Adam from. It means the most indivisible, least indivisible period of time. A time so short you can't divide it further. So in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we, meaning those who are still alive on earth, will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. So not all of us die if that's the case, depending on when you live and perhaps you'll be the ones that are alive when Jesus returns at this moment of his coming. But when he does, doesn't matter, dead or alive, you're all getting your new bodies at the same time and then going back to be with him. And here's how he says it happens. A little bit of depiction here for those who like pictures. He says it starts with a shout. The shout is whose shout? Nope, who shouted in, in, in Thessalonians? Paul says the Lord will shout. You'll hear the Lord's voice, first time ever. Audibly, I assume. Um, if it's not your first time, I'd like to talk to you about that, actually. Uh, the voice of, it, of the Lord, and then the trumpet, and the trumpet of the archangel, and here's where this actually has an interesting tie to uh, a feast on the calendar of Israel, the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah. People sometimes think this trumpet might refer to one of the trumpet judgments. If they think that, it's, it's both out of ignorance of, of the Jewish feasts and out of ignorance of the timing of the letters and their authorship. This letter was written long before the book of Revelation was written. So in Paul's day, no one knew anything about trumpet judgments. But Paul called it the trumpet. So clearly they knew which one he was talking about. The only trumpet they would have known in Paul's day was the trumpets of Rosh Hashanah because the Feast of Rosh Hashanah includes 100 trumpet blasts, the last of which is a long one, the last trumpet, they call it. Paul's referring to that because the Feast of Rosh Hashanah pictures this moment. Uh, in the feast on Jewish calendar, there's seven, three in the spring, one in the middle, and three in the fall. The three in the fall picture the events around the end of the age. They go Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Feast of Tabernacles, and they represent, respectively, the rapture, the tribulation, and the kingdom coming. Notice the order, rapture, then tribulation, then kingdom coming in that order. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Feast of Tabernacles. So Paul says this one is associated with the Feast of Rosh Hashanah, the last trumpet, and then he says the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, that's not exactly how it will happen, but... I use that just to make the point, but you need to understand when he says rise, that's a word that means resurrection. You could put the word resurrection in its place. The dead will resurrect first, you could have said. It's not meant to suggest where their bodies are coming from. God doesn't use the material of your original body. Paul said that plainly in 1 Corinthians. There's a heavenly and there's an earthly. You were made of the earthly first, you'll be made of a heavenly second. They're not the same material. Don't worry about whether your body is in the ground, cremated or whatever. It's, it's not gonna be part of the, of the material used again, okay? Uh, I just did that for fun. Anyway, then the alive, those who are alive will join Grandpa in the sky and <laughs> Jesus and all the rest of you will be there with him. And that's the moment of the coming of the Lord. All right? Now, the writer of Hebrews says, here's, we're getting back to chapter four, you just don't believe it yet. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says that no saint will be made perfect in this moment apart from the rest of the saints. Hebrews 11.39 says, speaking of the saints of the Old Testament, he says, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. And he's setting forth the principle there. The principle is this, that uh, saints never gain promises of the kingdom apart from their group. 
So no Old Testament saint will be resurrected or receive the kingdom before all Old Testament saints are resurrected and receive the kingdom with them. Similarly, no church saint will be resurrected and receive a new body and walk into the kingdom unless and until all church saints do it with them. No one's gonna be in the kingdom by themselves for a year or two waiting for the rest of everyone to show up. So this is a basic principle of scripture that glorification, or as the writer of Hebrews said, being made perfect, is something done in unison for groups in one moment. So a saint who has received a perfect new glorified body cannot do so apart from all of the same saints receiving the same in the same moment. So the Lord is gonna resurrect everyone in the moment Paul just described. You know, as Paul just said, the, that those who are alive will not precede those who have died in Christ. That is a, simply to say, no one's gonna be left out of that moment. And in particular, Paul confirms this in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, I confirm to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. All right? So that brings us to a second implication. First implication is that if one person's resurrected, they've all been resurrected. Second implication of the promise of John 14 is that in addition to the resurrection, at the coming of the Lord, we also receive our eternal rewards in that same moment. For example, Paul says this, let me just give you some background for those who may not realize there is a judgment for the believer. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we have as our ambition, whether at home, meaning in heaven, or absent, meaning still here on the earth, whether in heaven or on the earth, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed or repaid for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's the judgment seat of Christ, a moment that happens only once. There is not an, you know, the judgment seat of Christ isn't open Monday through Friday, nine to five. It, there is a moment and it's, it happens, all right? It does not happen once for you and then once for me and once for somebody else. Paul says, all believers appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and in that moment, each one receives his or her reward according to what she or he has done. And the Bible says that that moment is connected to our resurrection moment. James 5.9 says the judge is right at the door. That was his way of connecting the imminent return of Christ with our judgment to follow at that moment. And the judgment is the judgment for reward. And Paul echoes that in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. He says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, notice the reference there, but wait until the Lord comes, that's the coming of the Lord, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts and each man or each person's praise, or you can substitute the word reward, will come to him from God. So you're learning that several things happen in the same moment here that the Lord's coming, which is at any moment, brings with it a resurrection for all the, in the church in that same moment, and in that same moment will follow immediately the judgment seat of Christ, at which point all believers receive their rewards or their crowns. It's not a judgment for sin. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We keep clarifying that. It is rather a judgment only for the purpose of assigning reward. Paul even speaks about his own reward in this respect. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. 
What Paul does there is he says to the church in Thessalonica, he says, um, your existence is a work that will reflect on me in the way that God will reward me for your existence, basically. And he says, you are my crown. That is, you are my reward. All right, so there are other passages. For the sake of time, I won't read, but there's several others in Revelation itself, in 1 Corinthians 4, in 1 Peter 1, that all say the same thing, that the coming of the Lord has included in it a moment of judgment for those who are waiting for him. And that judgment is for our reward. So if you die today, you do not receive your new body yet because you don't get it before the other Christians who are still down here. And neither do you have your reward yet because you won't get your reward until all Christians face the judgment seat of Christ at the same time. You will simply wait along with the other souls of those who've gone before us and in comfort in the throne room, not in a bad thing at all, just waiting. But in the moment to follow when, we're, when the Lord's ready at the coming of the Lord, he wraps us all up together in the clouds and then we all see our reward in some form. Now, with that, we can go back to the scene in chapter four and look at what we've just discovered to prove what we thought might be true. You now have, in addition to the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, a time of praise and for honor, and you have 24 elders. Now look at the details again and tell me if you don't see the pattern here. You have 24 elders seated on thrones. They're wearing robes. They have their heads supporting crowns. That detail tells us they're possessing human bodies. They possess human bodies. They got a crown on their head. And as such, that must mean they have heavenly bodies. They could not be in the heavenly throne room otherwise, not in their sinful regular bodies, and there's only two kinds you can have, so we know which one they're in. And if they possess eternal bodies, then they have experienced the resurrection. And if they are believers who, have possess, who possess an eternal body and experienced the resurrection, then that means the Lord's coming has happened. And if it has happened for one, it has happened for all. And if they have their crowns, and that means they have their reward, that means there has been the coming of the Lord, that means they have been resurrected, that means we're all there. You can't have even one believer in the presence of God in a new eternal body with their reward unless we're all there. It's, it's impossible according to the New Testament. So the conclusion fits all the data. 24 elders are present, meaning all the church leadership. And if all the leaders are there, all the under shepherds are there, then all the sheep will be there. They are seated on thrones, ready to rule. They have their eternal rewards. They have their new bodies. And the whole Holy Spirit is present with them. Look, you, you don't need more data than that to know that we have moved suddenly at the beginning of chapter four into a moment in which the Lord has come and removed the church from its position on earth and brought it into the place he promised he would bring it. So now we should ask, why does he do this? That is, why all this elaborate uh, process? Well, remembering the two terms we learned today in our study, you have the coming of the Lord and you have the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, and we can start calling it Jacob's troubles again, is a period of time for who? It's been promised to them, Israel, through Daniel, right? It was given to them for very specific reasons related to them and their old covenant. It is said to lead them into the kingdom. That's why we have to finish it. It's still got seven years left. But if you notice, none of that applies to us. Meanwhile, it's also a time of great wrath. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, remember? And it will bring wrath no one will escape. But the part I didn't read last time is the next two verses, four and nine. 
he says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day would overtake you. And in nine, he says, God has not destined you for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Now, we've seen these before. These are often verses that get thrown out when we get into the debate about the timing of the event. But what we're learning is that it's not just about preference, oh, I hope that's true. It's about necessity because the time that's waiting, that last seven years, is for a very specific purpose and an audience, neither of which apply to the church. In fact, Peter said in 2 Peter 3 that that day would overtake the whole earth. The whole earth would be burned with fire. So I ask you, how can a day of destruction that impacts the whole earth not impact the church, as Paul says it won't. He says, we will not be in that darkness. How can it affect the whole earth and yet not affect us? There's only one way. We can't be on the earth. That's the only way that that promise holds true. And in one more passage, and we're just near the end of time here. I told you I was gonna fill your your cup up tonight. In 2 Thessalonians 2, and this is a long passage, but I'm just gonna highlight a couple of points along the way. In speaking to the church in Thessalonica, Paul settles a concern they had. Someone had told them that they had missed the coming of the Lord and that they were now experiencing the tribulation or the day of the Lord. That obviously made them nervous. So the Lord, uh, Paul wrote back to correct their thinking and he says, with regard to the coming of our Lord, let me substitute some words here. With respect or with regard to the rapture or to the resurrection we could say, don't be worried that you are experiencing the tribulation. You see how the two terms are working together there. Paul goes on to say, let no one deceive you in any way, for tribulation will not come unless, and then he gives some prerequisites. Remember, there are no prerequisites to the coming of the Lord, but there are prerequisites to things like tribulation. And you have to have the man of lawlessness revealed. You have to have the apostasy of the Laodicean church. Paul wrote this in the first century. They were 2,000 years away from that. So he was trying to tell the church, you cannot be in tribulation, because there are certain things that haven't happened yet that must happen before we get there. And the reason he connects it to the concept of the coming of the Lord, there must be only one reason why he would put that in the same passage, because those events must also have some connection. That is, there must be a precedence. One must precede the other. That would only, that's the only way to make sense of this if Paul's trying to reassure them. If he's trying to reassure them they have not missed the coming of the Lord by telling them that the tribulation has not begun yet, then it must be saying that the tribulation follows the coming of the Lord. It follows it. If you don't see the tribulation coming, you haven't missed the coming of the Lord yet. If the coming of the Lord happens somewhere in the middle of tribulation, you couldn't say this. It could be possible for them to have been in the tribulation and yet not yet have seen the coming of the Lord. But Paul makes it clear they have nothing to worry about, he says, because the tribulation hasn't started. If it hasn't started, you haven't missed the coming of the Lord. One comes first, then the other. And Paul says it has to be that way because there is something restraining the arrival of the lawless one, the one we know as Daniel's 11th horn or the Antichrist, There's something restraining his appearing because the one behind him, the power behind him, as Paul calls the mystery of lawlessness, that's Paul's term for Satan, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. He'd certainly love to raise raise up an antichrist right now if he could get away with it. Why can't he? Because there's something God's doing to restrain it for the time being. But when that restrainer is taken out of the way, then all hell breaks loose on earth, and I mean that literally. 
and the lawless one is revealed. So what would restrain the lawless one? Well, he doesn't say specifically here, but the implication based on the throne room scene in in Revelation 4, the implication is the Holy Spirit, as he indwells the body, acts as a governor within the world in such a way that God uses him to restrain. Once Once that's removed with the church, then the governor's off the engine and it races ahead. Let's finish with a little comparison between these two terms and how they play in opposite directions. It really simplifies everything we've learned. The day of the Lord is for Israel. The 70th seven, right? The coming of the Lord, it's only for the church. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. The day of the coming of the Lord is a day of reward. The day of the Lord can only be at the final seven of this age. Can't happen sooner, has dependencies, has prerequisites, etc. But the coming of the Lord, always near and possible. The day of the Lord can only happen after the lawless one is revealed. The coming of the Lord must happen before the lawless one is revealed because we, in our departure, are how he is allowed to be revealed. The day of the Lord brings the age to the end. The coming of the Lord brings the church age to an end. And they both await the removal of the restrainer. That is, the removal of the spirit is effectively what moves one to the other. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the day of the Lord is triggered by that because we know that the day of the Lord doesn't start until what event? The covenant that is to be established, Daniel 9 told us. But there's certainly a a connection here. All right. I have one last thing to do, and I know I'm running us into the time of question, but it's worth it because I don't want to come back to this. I want to move to new things next week. Last thing, and it's fun. Here's a puzzle that has long stumped Bible students. How is this passage true? Paul, uh, uh, Jesus says, speaking of the coming of the Lord, he says, but of the day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. Now, that part we, un- we understand, right? It's an unknown, ever-present day. It's the next thing he says that confuses us. Nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. How is it that not even Jesus knows the time of his own return for the church? Well, it ties back to something we saw in John 14. In John 14, Jesus used something, used some language that was very interesting. He says, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. There are many dwelling places, right? Now, we know he was a carpenter, but I still don't think he's up there hammering nails and putting up, you know, wallboard for us, right? I mean, imagine that. Every time someone gets saved here on earth, Jesus is like, oh, for crying out loud. (laughs) Another room, right? No, he's not doing that. In fact, it's not even our home, right? We're not there long. We come back down here anyway. So it begs the question, why did he choose to use such an interesting turn of phrase to describe his departure and the time he spends away from us? The reason has to tie to uh, Jewish wedding traditions of ancient times, which explains this phrase. And I'm gonna take you through how a Jewish wedding tradition was done in a very simple sense, ancient terms, and then you'll see for yourself the connection. It's a little story. You have a, husband, a father, a patriarch, he has a home somewhere in Israel, and he also has a son. That son has reached marrying age, and in the way they did things back then, they arranged marriages, so the father is gonna find a bride for his son. Parents with young kids, it's a great idea, I did suggest it, and father, has a servant, fathers don't go out for their, do their own searching, they use servants, he's a man of some means, and so he sends a servant out looking for a bride. You may remember the story of Isaac and Rebekah in 
in Genesis 24, uh, Abraham sends his servant back to his ancestral home. He doesn't want to just take some Canaanite. He wants somebody from his family that he trusts. He sends his servant to go find Rebekah for Isaac. Isaac doesn't look for himself. The servant goes. So in this case, the servant goes to the bride's house, finds a bride. There's some negotiation with the bride's family. Hey, you, you didn't pay extra for the graphics, so... Um, there's, there's the bride's family, and the negotiation will involve a price being paid for the bride and a negotiation process, and then a betrothal. And if the bride is inclined and the family agrees to a, a price for that marriage, then a, a formal agreement is struck. Betrothal, in ancient terms, is not like an engagement. It's literally a wedding, or I say it differently. It's literally a marriage. It's a legal marriage. It's bound. You've bought her. I mean, there's a contract, basically. You've paid money for something. And by the way, if you're worried about why women are getting bought and it seems demeaning, you've got it completely backwards. Men didn't leave the home. They stayed with the father, and they built onto the father's home. Women left their family to join the other family. Well, you're losing value. Your, your family is losing something of value. So it required being compensated for that value. In fact, if you didn't have a high enough price for the bride, you were insulting her. You were saying, oh, you know, you don't go out for a goodwill discount bride. You know, that wasn't exactly a, a, a way of affirming you with the family. So they would negotiate a price. The price would be paid. The woman would get symbols of the betrothal, rings in the nose or around the wrists, gifts that suggest that I am now taken and the woman is taken. And then after that, what do you think happens? She doesn't go. She stays. And the servant goes back and reports to the father, I've got a deal for you. Sonny Boy is now officially married. Uh, we just call it betrothed, but he's married. He couldn't go marrying someone else at this point. They're married. In fact, if they wanted to end the marriage, they'd have to divorce. Remember, that was the situation for Joseph and Mary. They had never consummated the marriage, but they were married. He was going to go divorce her. So in this case now, what's the wait all about? Well, the father expects the son to provide a home for the bride. That's where Jesus' language in John 14 was coming from. The father expects the son to build a home onto the main house. And that building process takes some time. And so the son is put to work. The father is the one who determines when that room is ready for his new daughter-in-law. Because think about it, guys. If, if you're getting to your wife for the first time dependent on your finishing a project, just how well do you think you're going to do that project? <laughs> Right? How quick do you, you know, da, 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 dad, I'm done, you know, and dad's like, no, that's not done. Start over. So they just had to do this for a while. Meanwhile, what's the bride doing? Yeah, she doesn't know what to do. I mean, well, she doesn't know when this is going to finish. She doesn't know Twitter, Facebook, etc. She's just miles away without any knowledge of what's going on back at the other house, just always ready for her groom's arrival. And I've read in some places that they would stay dressed in their wedding attire at all times because you didn't know when he might show up for you. And that's something you remember from the parables in Matthew when we hear about the virgins being ready with their wicks and lamps and the groom can appear at any time. He wasn't making up something that was foreign to them. That was very, they understood that. that. That came out of their culture. So this goes on for a while. Finally, there's an addition on the home and the father says, all right, son, you've done well enough. Now you can go. And with that, he takes off. He goes to the bride's house he appears without any warning. He claims his bride. And it was done in a way where, you know, there wasn't any real time for her to, you know, she couldn't say, oh, you're here. Well, let me do my hair. No, you're out of here. And so she knows she's going to see her husband for the first time under those circumstances. So she's ever ready, spotless and clean, ready for her, uh, her husband. When he gets her, where do you think they go? They go back to the father's house. 
And that's when the formal wedding takes place. And after the formal wedding, they're now a couple for real, if you will, they, they now enter the marriage tent and they're left in there for seven days. They don't get out, they pass food in and bedpans out, I guess. <laughs> I like to say you thought your honeymoon was bad. Uh, and they got seven days to get to know each other and if you're wondering what happens in the tent, I'll just leave it at, at this. So they, they have seven days there. Now, you might be thinking about this point. Well, the bride, the bride family, the bride's family, they kind of got shafted here because they don't have anything to celebrate. They just saw their daughter run off, right? Well, what about a, a party for them? Well, they're going to give them one. After the seven days of tent time, they go back to the bride's house and they have a second celebration with the bride's family at her home and the bride is effectively, the bride's family has been given a seven day notice to get ready for the party, which they wouldn't have had otherwise, right? That's how that works for them. So now you could tell me why Jesus said, if I go, I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you and if I go, you will know I will come back so that I receive you to where I am, you will be also. And you can map that whole process out now knowing that what he was doing for the disciples was giving them better insight into what the coming of the Lord was gonna be like by using the wedding tradition as a metaphor. And we know elsewhere in the scriptures, he's called the groom, we're called the bride, we're told to be spotless and clean, ready for our groom, always waiting. The, the pictures just build an understanding of what he's doing. And when he says, I don't even know the hour and the day of my coming, I don't think that he means it less than literally. I don't know that he knows. But in the sense that the Father is gonna determine when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when the bride is ready. And that is something, according to scripture, that it is the sovereignty of the Father to give to Jesus all that are his, according to John chapter six. All that the Father gives me, I receive all and lose none. The Father is the one giving to the Son who will be his, and the Son's just waiting for the Father to say, I've given you all I'm gonna give you. And then in that moment, there's an instantaneous return. We're just supposed to be always ready for that, okay? So at the end of the church age, we reach the moment in which the king returns, but not to set up the kingdom for us, but to claim the citizens of that kingdom from among the church. And when we think about the future and we think about what we learn in this book, don't get ahead of the plan. As fascinated as we're gonna be with what comes next and we need to learn it, this is what we're supposed to be waiting on. This is what we're supposed to be thinking about. Everything comes back to being ready for the return of Christ, all right? Let's end with that and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for extra patience tonight and I hope extra insight and with that, Father, I hope a, a charge for all of us to think more carefully about being ready knowing at any moment we'll see you face to face and occupy a new and heavenly body that we long for. And in a flash, Father, we will see a new future open up in front of us. And I suspect we'll scarcely catch our breath as we enter into that new world. But I do pray, Father, we're all ready and that, Lord, you come quickly. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.